0: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans in Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike DeSapp, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the fourth episode in our multi-part series sponsored by Farmer Veteran Coalition a national nonprofit organization mobilizing veterans to feed America and transition from military service to careers in agriculture. This series will showcase unique partnerships between FVC and several organizations offering programs and support for military veterans in agriculture. Our guest this week is Joshua Morris, owner-operator at Cold Spring Farm in the Missouri Ozarks. He's also a Farmer Veteran Coalition member, Fellowship Fund recipient, and Kubota's Geared to Give recipient. Joshua has worn many hats throughout his military career and transition into agriculture. Parachutist, engineer, real estate investor, bison rancher, show goat expert, cattleman, published author, and YouTuber. Right, we get into all of this during today's episode, and Joshua shares some fantastic nuggets of information about how to create niche agricultural opportunities wherever you settle, and the Farmer Veteran Coalition has been along for the ride the entire time. Enjoy.
1: the son of a coal miner and we grew up in a farming area but my parents didn't farm we may have had kind of a hobby farm and so it's always something that was around me and I wasn't really participating in that growing up and then as soon as I graduated high school I joined the United States Army I had a ranger contract so I went to 1st Ranger Battalion that was my first unit went to ranger school um, also was able to, while I was enlisted being some other airborne units, I was in the 173rd Airborne. And then myself, like everyone else, experienced a huge change in the military after 9/11. I was uh, E5, I was a sergeant in 2001. And before too long I found myself you know deployed like everyone else. And notably, I was a Scout squad leader and parachuted into Iraq in 2003 for Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. And that was probably my most notable deployment. Later, I also went to OCS, became an officer. I was branch detailed to the infantry uh, for a few years. And then after that, I branched, uh, transferred or basically retrained to become an engineer officer, which was an awesome experience. It just sort of rounded out some of the interest areas that I've always had. And I was actually able to get my master's degree while on active duty in engineering and really had a great, fulfilling career. But, you know, there was always something missing, and that's where the agriculture part came in and kind of getting back to the land.
0: You joined the Army right out of high school. What, what was the catalyst that told you, yeah, I want to go give this a try?
1: So when I was growing up, I was always that kid who was grabbing the other guys, my other friends, and taking them on you know adventures and rafting trips, rock climbing trips, camping trips, and things like that. So I did well in school. My grades were good, but I did not like to be indoors very much. And I wanted that adventure. I wanted challenge. I wanted to do something really hard out of high school. And so that's why I was just determined to get that, that ranger contract. When I showed up at the MEPS, they told me, well, you can be infantry, but we don't have any ranger contracts available. I said, well, I'm leaving then. So, you know, maybe, maybe next time. And they came back out and got me and they said, okay, well, we found the ranger contract. So Uh then I, I had that locked in, and and so I was able to. It really was the adventure of a lifetime. It wasn't um, exactly the way I pictured it. Um, it was it was harder in a lot of ways, but it was definitely the adventure of a lifetime.
0: In in what ways wasn't? In what ways was it not what you had pictured?
1: Well, I was more of a survivalist uh, <clears throat> when I was growing up. My interest areas were more in, you know, sort of that camping survivalist-type Bear grills type experiences, things like that. And so Ranger School was a lot more about patrolling and combat, you know, ambush, raid, reconnaissance, and things like that, than it was about being a survivalist. And so that was slightly different. But I also underestimated just how expert and how, you know, intelligent, knowledgeable, a lot of the professionals in the United States military are. I totally underestimated that when I was a civilian. Mm-hmm. And when I got in, I, I realized just what kind of dedication, commitment, and, and kind of like full engagement um, of, of a person's, you know, intellect and, and everything, you know, that makes up a, a person's skill set, how that has to be totally engaged um, in the military. I mean, people are really giving it 110% and then some. And I totally underestimated that as a civilian. Hmm. So that was very impressive for me, but it also kind of brought me to that next level of performance. In other words, whenever you are a civilian, a lot of times it's acceptable to quit. And when you're, when you quit on anything, a lot of times that's just, oh, I'm taking a break or I'm going to you know, watching some social media for a while. I'm just going to go on vacation. And in the military, sometimes often you'll find it's not acceptable to quit because the mission comes first. And whenever you don't allow yourself to quit, that's when your brain learns something. That's when your mind expands.
0: It's funny how you think that the hardest thing you've ever done is the hardest thing you've ever done. Right. That's just the perspective that you have, but coming into the military and I can imagine into the ranger uh, training program that you don't know how much further you can go until you're put in those situations. Um, And then it, it, to me, it also just sort of feels like a new part of your mind Kind of gets unlocked in some ways, right? And you realize that that's you it. have yeah. you have more runway than you ever would have thought you had.
1: But I can remember one of my early road marches. So I was in Ranger indoctrination, and that's I think it's called Ranger uh, Assessment RASP now, but it used to be called Ranger Indoctrination Program. And so I was not in the Ranger Battalion yet. I was it's basically a selection, and mm-hmm. I was trying to get in. And we had a road march where. <clears throat> Uh, we had a uh, kind of a, a one of those mornings where it was so hot outside that you have to get up at two thirty in order to, uh, you know, not be in the extreme heat of the day. And then you start to notice the the lights around you start to kind of flash, and the world sort of throb around you. So you're you have kind of that tunnel vision, and you're thinking, well at some point, I'm just going to collapse on the side of the road, and they're going to have to stick me with an IV, but when you keep pushing through a situation like that, and you actually make it, and you don't collapse, then you realize, wow, you know, if I really do want something bad enough, and I don't quit, I'm actually going to get to the end of the road march, and I'm actually mm-hmm. going to get there, but one of my, uh, one of my instructors for the ranger indoctrination program was uh, Sergeant First Class Struker, um, and he was, uh, in Somalia, as Sergeant Struker, he's in the Black Hawk Down movie. Huh. So, he was I'm one kidding. of my instructors for Ranger indoctrination. And that guy was maybe the meanest character that never cursed that you will ever meet. I mean, he would say stuff like, You know, you better get up that rope, Ranger, before I go to your house and I'm gonna slap your mother and father for raising a boy who can't climb a 30 foot rope, you know, stuff like that. And he also won best ranger twice, Uh, so he was a hard individual. But one morning, I remember he said, you know, there are way too many of you here in this platoon, and 10 of you need to quit this morning. And he took us to a hill called Cardiac Hill, and he said, we're going to run up and down this hill until 10 of you quit. Does anyone want to just save us the trouble and quit right now? And of course, it took a while, but he did get 10 of us to quit. You know, we're, we're running in the pouring rain, just running up and down this hill. And Struger would grab a Ranger every once in a while, throw him on his shoulders in a fireman's carry and just run with him, you know, just to show everyone that this could be done. And this was, you know, I was 18 at the time. And this is my first introduction to what it looks like when someone says, my brain and everything in my body is telling me that it's time to quit and time to stop. But there's this part of me, and I guess that's the human spirit that's saying, no, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to refuse to quit. I'm going to be more you know resilient than that.
0: It's hard to communicate to folks that have neither been in that perspective or in that position to understand the value that it can provide. Um, I was <clears throat> you mentioned something a few minutes ago about parachuting into Iraq in March of two thousand and three. I didn't know that paratroopers came into Iraq in that method. Can you describe that situation and the rationale and what that was like?
1: Yeah, so we didn't believe it up to the last moment. We didn't believe that this mission would actually go through without being scratched. Of course, you know, you plan for missions and for contingencies all the time uh, when you're in that type of a unit. Um, and so when we finally found ourselves fully loaded with ammo, and I think it was probably. You know, when, you, when you're when you rigged up with a parachute for a combat jump, your parachute is on your back, which means your ruck and everything that you have to carry and all your equipment, and your gear is kind of hung to your front. And the weight is on the straps of your parachute, which are thinner and harder and less comfortable than like a, than ruck straps. So here we are, probably mm-hmm. most of us had, you know, between 100 and 130 pounds of gear because, you know, live rounds are heavier than, Blank rounds and grenades are heavier than not having grenades and you know, C4 um, on your Claymore mine, that's pretty heavy too. And so all this stuff adds up. And so, you know, when you're in the moment and you're on that plane and you're rigged up, you're mainly just thinking, I want to get this crap off my shoulders. (laughs) You know? Right. (laughs) And so uh what you want to do is get out the door of the aircraft because as soon as you jump out the door and that parachute opens. The parachute takes all that weight, and so it's it's kind of the most peaceful moment. And I don't know if that's because you know you're above the planet, you know, um, several hundred feet, and you're looking at this beautiful night sky, or if it's just because you took all that pain off of your shoulders. So I don't maybe it's a combination of both. Uh, But yeah, my thought was mainly to get out the door, and also it's kind of a goal. As soon as you become airborne, your next thing is thinking, "Wow, if I had a combat jump, that'd be you know." much cooler than having these airborne wings on my chest. I think the biggest thing that I, that I got from that deployment was just that you cannot plan enough. And you, when you're planning, you don't want to underestimate the enemy or in life and other situations and in civilian life, it means you don't want to underestimate the task at hand. So you know, if we're talking about farming and agriculture, for example, you are interacting with creation and nature and storms and disasters and, and, you know, and viruses that your livestock may, may have, or your crops may have. And so just like whenever we parachuted into Iraq in 2003, we didn't want to underestimate the enemy. That was very important.
0: When did you decide and why did you decide that it was time to leave the service and head into the agricultural space, despite not having any experience with it, you know, growing up.
1: Just prior to deploying to to Iraq. So I was at the time I was stationed in Italy. I was with the 173rd Mm. airborne. And so I'd met my wife over there and that's what changes things for, that's what changed things for me was my wife. So um, now she's my wife of, you know, coming on 22 years and we are just perfect match. Um, a lot of the things that I can't do, she does well and vice versa. And so things began to change where instead of wanting that adrenaline, instead of wanting that adventure and then excitement, I wanted more of, I wanted a family. I wanted to be with the woman that I loved and kind of have that life where you could be, you could have peace and security and things like that. And I think that came to a culmination on that first deployment to Iraq in 2003, um, we were set up, so I was a scout uh, sniper squad leader, and we were set up in various, the different teams were set up in various locations, mainly observing areas. And I mean, we were observing chaos. Society was collapsing in front of us in 2003. There were young men out there that were pulling down power lines so they could sell them as scrap metal they had no thought for the you know, future of their country or their economy or infrastructure or anything. They needed to get that money and they needed to feed their families you know, the next day or in the coming weeks. And I was thinking about my own family. And when you see another family out there becoming, uh, you know, losing their homes, becoming refugees, things like that, then you think about how you want your life to unfold and you start to think deeply about that. So there's one particular day when my platoon sergeant came by and gave us a resupply and said, Hey, your wife is available. You can call, you know, you can talk to your wife on the phone. So I had a quick conversation, conversation with my wife. And right before I left, we were trying to have a baby. And sure enough, uh, on that phone call, my wife said, you're going to be a, a new dad. So that was right there. That's a transform, a uh, transformative moment in your life. Everything changed I was no longer after that next adrenaline high, or no longer after you know trying to blow something up, jump out of a plane. All that was second fiddle to the the main event in my life was which was becoming a dad. And so you're thinking, what I really would like to do is find some part of the world, some little corner that I can call my own, and a some peaceful place where I can raise a family, and what better way to do that than to also, be able to raise food, you know, be part of God's creation, build soil, grow something, raise livestock. Uh, To me at the time, that seemed like the most worthy goal that that you could have when raising a family. And it still does. It's very rewarding. Um, It's not without sacrifice itself at all, but um, it's very rewarding and and it's a great lifestyle. So so that's, you know, the very early, uh, the very early, earliest time that I that I had that goal was in a combat zone thinking about raising my family. And it took me a long time to actually build that lifestyle. Um, from that moment. It was still almost a decade before we were able to even purchase any land. So, and that I think that's one thing people have to keep in mind is is how long it takes to build the lifestyle that you want.
0: And so when you guys were thinking about, this is the sort of life I wanna build, Um, this is where I wanna do it, how did you go about either pulling the funds together or if you already had those together, how did you go about deciding, I wanna start with cattle or goats?
1: Yeah, so when we first started, we really didn't know which direction we were going to go in or which agricultural enterprise that we would end up with. And we are not where we thought we would be when we started. But just getting that funding together is probably the biggest challenge that everyone faces. And I have a lot of people that that ask me about that now. In our situation, we were able to purchase homes and and Sort of flip them, kind of have a good resale value. Mm-hmm. While I was still active duty, we did we weren't living on post. We would always buy, and then use that real estate investment to kind of propel us into the next one. And then, so when it came time to buy um, the first forty acres here in the Missouri Ozarks, we had cash to be able to do that, and that was that's very important. And so, having a long term goal is key a farm is like any other business and when you think about businesses and the capital that's required to start up that's huge with farming sometimes people underestimate that and they think oh this is a really simple business it doesn't require any capital in most cases that's totally untrue farming requires uh, often huge amounts of capital Mm -hmm. and not only that but your return on your investment might be lower. And And so that's It is, right. It takes longer to pay that back. And so what you have to think about in your mind before you commit is, are you willing to climb that mountain? And is it worth it? But in life, what you should probably do is think about what is the most worthy goal that you can come up with? Because you're not going to get another shot at it. You know, you have this one chance. And if you, once you can identify what that most worthy goal is for you personally, why would you do anything else, right? Or why would you work towards anything else? And it doesn't mean you get that instant gratification. You know, like when, whenever I first came up with the idea, it wasn't like I I said, well, I quit with this military stuff and I'm just going to farm and just leave me alone. Don't even talk to me about anything else. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was, okay, I'm going to spend the next 10 years working towards this goal you know, taking what small amount of capital that I have or this extra, you know, the, the tax-free combat pay that helped a lot, you know, taking that money and rolling it up into a piece of real estate rather than, you know, say a fancy vacation or something like that. So you have to, you know, identify that goal, which is that mountain that you're going to climb, commit to it, and then figure out, you know, how you can invest all of your effort and, and your time and your savings um, into that goal. And so uh, once we, you know, bought the initial 40 acres, that was a great start, but we were still just at the foot of the mountain and through time, we've had to get a, a you know, continued, you know, farm loans and invest everything that we had, you know, we'd have, we'd have timber sales, farm loans, and things like that in order to finance uh, the next piece of, of that, uh, of the farm. And so now we've ended up today with, uh, we have a 360 acre uh, ranch and farm. We raise you know, primarily a uh, registered herd of Black Angus cattle, registered boer goats. Goats often make more than, than cattle these days. People are surprised by that, but they do quite well, especially the, the registered boer goats. Are you uh, selling them for meat or breeding? We are selling them primarily for breeding stock, but okay. actually a lot of show animals too. Okay. Um, and so that's something that, You know, shows flexibility, and so whenever you're marketing something, whenever you first start raising an animal or a product, you want to really be on the lookout for opportunities, for market opportunities. Mm -hmm. So goats, for example, when we started out with goats, I just wanted something that was going to help me try to keep the brush down and make you know manage the weeds. And uh, my it was actually my children. I have uh, two daughters. And they were little at the time. The, the oldest ones in college now, but at the time, they wanted to show these goats. And for me, it was it was a little bit of an inconvenience because because I want to be running my farm and I'm spending time at at these fairs and these these national goat shows and things like that. But that became the biggest market opportunity that that I ever found was was just by accident and by kind of following my my children's interests. I started to realize wow, there's a lot of money in, in show goats. And so I was able to figure out how to do what I love, which is work with the land, you know, kind of be part of uh, creation, interact with creation itself, but still be able to make money doing that and afford to do it uh, by by having, you know, enough of a profit to to pay the bills.
0: Right. You You made three really solid points that I want to I want to just make sure folks captured from the comments that you just made. Take some time to build some capital. Once you've got your farm, diversify it and try to find a niche opportunity within the market that you are to to provide a product that doesn't exist there. Those are really solid points, Joshua. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it and it's been a learning experience the whole way. And I think it's something that hopefully everyone goes through in their life but when you're younger and you're you're really going for that instant gratification at least I was I mean before I met my wife uh, my paycheck was blown at the end of every month you know I was going to (laughs) be so part of my time I was you know stationed in Europe so I'm always going you know to some other uh, you know tourist destination every weekend some beach or some mountain somewhere and then later you know I'm maturing a little bit and a lot of that is probably to my wife's credit and realizing, okay, the instant gratification thing is only going to get you so far and you have to start thinking about the future. And so then you have this delayed gratification. And so building the farm business was like the ultimate test in delayed gratification because you want this goal, you want this farm for so many years, but you have no way of getting that immediately. And so it did take a lot of savings and a lot of planning Mm-hmm. And then once we actually started, the planning has to continue. And so you have to figure out what you want to spend your time doing. So in our case, it was it was going to be livestock because we are just not into the types of uh, labor that's required for gardening or for large greenhouses or for crop work. Um, and so the livestock were easier to get into also. Uh, the investment capital is a little bit lower than say um, row crops um, or probably quite a bit lower than row crops. You can start off with livestock. And so having that plan and, and, and an idea of, of how, what our product was going to be and then identifying that market, you know, that, was, that was number one. And then a lot of the, the concepts, it's, it's funny how some of the concepts actually relate from the military to agriculture. For example, you mentioned being able to find a niche market or sort of have the flexibility to to pursue a niche market or to pursue an opportunity. And so flexibility, I think that's one of the principles of defense in the military. You know, if you study like strategic level defense, having the flexibility, you know, and then so whenever you're able to do that, you, you move your resources over to that area And you focus um, on that area where you know that you're going to get a return. And so that's why it's great to have these multiple enterprises on a small farm or especially a new farm. And that's really paid off. So we actually, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, if you look back far enough on our social media and stuff, you start to see pictures of bison um, in the beginning of the farm. And so we had bison when we first started out. And that was really kind of thinking back on it, that was a crazy thing to do to start off with our first enterprise being bison. And we were making money. We found a way to, you know, the bison meat was basically very profitable. And so we were able to make a profit, but the labor involved was both intense and dangerous. So with bison, you cannot rest for a moment. You'll be sitting there, in the middle of the night thinking, oh yeah, that one was looking at me so crazy today. I bet she's going to bust the fence in this certain corner that I know is a little weak. And so you have to also value your peace of mind, you know? And so if you have the flexibility to follow other opportunities, then when you're, whenever something becomes um, less profitable, or let's say you know, it has a greater opportunity cost, you know, because you could be raising an animal that's easier. So you find another opportunity and you go after that. And so that's what we did. We, our children were getting older. We wanted them to be able to participate more. And we also wanted it to be safer for ourselves. We didn't want to see someone have a really bad accident. So we got into the Angus cattle and, Mm -hmm. and the goats at the same time. And having that flexibility has been one of our biggest Assets because while the bison were profitable, we, we found wow, we could do cattle on a larger scale and raise that profit up even a little more. And then we had another enterprise going at the same time, which we didn't expect anything to come out of, which were the goats. And when we were introduced to the breeding market and the show goat market, we realized wow, there's another opportunity so we can have this. Other income stream. And so at the end of the tax year, whenever you're looking at your different enterprises, it's really good and it's important to keep the proper records so that you can separate your different farming enterprises, goats, cattle, Uh, we also sell some hay, we've sold some timber, and so you can separate those into different categories and separate both the, you know, your, your expenditures and then your sales so that you know what your actual profit is from each enterprise. And then you also want to try, and this is probably even harder, but you wanna try to keep track of your time and then your stress level for each enterprise too. (laughs) And then figure out which one is the most profitable and the least costly. And so even though in our case, the bison were fairly profitable, the stress uh, of having an exotic animal like that was so high that it became costly. And so now we decided, well, these other enterprises are going to actually be more profitable. And so having that flexibility and keeping your records at the same time so you can reflect and evaluate your different enterprises. That's very important for every farm. I think a lot of a lot of farms probably it's it's the old cliche, you know, they don't uh, plan to fail, but they just failed to plan and, and maybe even failed to to plan to be to be flexible you know so that's also just as important as planning
0: how did you uh i first of all i can resonate with uh or relate to the bison uh piece we just had um, a young woman uh, liz riffle from riffle farms in west virginia uh, on the podcast and she was one of the first commercial bison producers in the state of west virginia that allowed them to do field harvest for individual cuts and sales of meat and she described just how difficult, especially around fencing and polywire, that bison were in, in, in her area. Uh, and so a lot of what you're saying about the difficulty of that animal resonates with what she had described uh, in her operation. We've sort of been kind of talking around some of the financial aspects of uh, the farm. I want to maybe get into how the Farmer Veteran Coalition and Uh, the fellowship grant that you got from them, how that helped you in some of your early or perhaps later uh, ranching operations. Can you talk about your early interaction with FVC and what that fellowship fund uh, was like for you and and what you put it to use for?
1: Yeah, so the Farmer Veteran Coalition is so much more than than just a series of grants and, and funds that are available they're such a great learning resource. For example, uh, whenever you're getting out of the military and you're a veteran, you're often not a local. Sometimes people go back home, but a lot of times you don't go back home. So you're not one of the locals and you don't know the ins and outs of agriculture. You may not even know where your local USDA office is, but the Farmer Veteran Coalition directs veterans straight to these assets that you can use. And so I'd say first, even before any of the other things that we applied for with them, we applied for uh, different USDA programs through mainly through NRCS. So the the Equip program through the EQIP program, we received uh, basically a, a cost share for our cross fencing and our waterers, and I want to say that was valued at somewhere around fifty thousand dollars, which if you look back on it, if you took that $50,000 away from our operation, we probably would have failed. So right there is one thing that the Farmer Veteran Coalition can help you, you know, harness that money and, and access that resource um, that you could find to be critical you know, to your success. Um, there, there are also programs that they can, they can help you navigate to do with the CSP, so the uh, Conservation Stewardship Program, also through NRCS. And and that one is more for once you become an established farm, how you can implement conservation practices and get paid for that. And so that's kind of an annual payment, and you're going to be able to take care of your land, build soil, um, increase you know diversity in your local ecosystem. But also, it's a form or it's a stream of income uh, for your farm. And we've found that all of these are critical. You know, you might need. We talked about different enterprises, so you can have four or five streams of income that are all necessary in order to actual, actually have um, a paycheck um, that's gonna pay your bills. And so the Farmer Veteran Coalition can, can help you. You know, Some people right now might be watching and thinking, well, I don't know what NRCS stands for or CSP. I don't know how to apply for this. And the Farmer Veteran Coalition, they can direct you and they have classes actually on how to navigate and apply for all of these programs. So that in itself is one of the most useful things. And then of course, um, while you're doing that and you get to know some of the folks that have already gone through these experiences and applied for these programs and other veterans that have been successful, you know, that's that fellowship part. And that's just critical to see that someone else is, has already done it. You're not alone, uh, other people have been successful, and they can also give you an idea of what that entails, um, even though a lot of times you find that, well, there are some huge challenges,
0: but you right. want to know,
1: those, you know you don't want to know those ahead of time. that's that's really important. Right. Um, and then uh, I was also fortunate enough to win the uh, the fellowship uh, grant in uh, two thousand and twenty two, and mine came from Tractor Supply. So Tractor Supply is w- one of the greatest supporters of the Farmer Veteran Coalition. And I received a thousand dollar gift card that we used to buy goat fencing. And I can tell you, you can never have enough fencing for goats. It's probably, you know, having goats is kind of like meaning that you need to have a fence that can hold water is what they say. If it can hold water, then it can hold goats. And so that was that was very helpful. And then in 2023, Uh, We had a huge, kind of a huge uh, success or huge, you know, step forward on the farm because uh, we received the uh, Kubota geared to give uh, award and the Kubota donated uh, two brand new hay mowers. One was actually a hay mower conditioner and the other one's a hay mower. So two of those um, to the farm, which was very timely It had gotten to the point where the old hay mower, which was a much cheaper brand, was breaking so often that I had to weld. I had I had to load the welder in the back of my truck every time I was going to go cut hay because I knew the hay mower was going to break. Sometimes it would literally like break in half, like the hay mower is folding in half, and I have to weld something together to to try to keep this thing going. Um, And in my area, there are a lot of hay leases available, and a lot of people will find this. In their areas, that they're going to be older farmers that they have land available, or they need help, or they would like someone to harvest uh-huh. hay or something off their property. And if you are ready to do that, then that's a huge opportunity. And I was to the point where I was having to turn down new hay leases because I knew my equipment was going to break. And so when Kubota uh, gave our farm these new hay mowers, I immediately starting. Last year, as soon as I found out, I immediately took on a couple new hay leases in the area um, so that we could cut uh, hay on new hay ground. And so it's been a huge uh, step forward. I mean, I was to the point where I had to seriously consider, you know, eliminating the hay enterprise from the farm operation totally. And so that's just an example of how the Farmer Veteran Coalition, it's not only a helpful organization when you're starting, But in some cases, like in my case, the farmer veteran coalition meant that my farm was able to continue to operate and not fail. Um, And believe me, you're often in agriculture, you're on that kind of that razor's edge where you could go either way and your farm could fail or succeed almost in any given year. And so having having an organization like the FVC that's there to, to provide that support help and even in this case um, funding and, and equipment is is make or break sometimes
0: what what was the application like joshua filling out for the fellowship fund what's required what was your experience with it
1: so first all, i'll just say it's well <laughs> worth it that being said whenever i filled out the application for the first time i remember there it was so it was, in, it was in the winter time and I'm I'm sitting there at the table with my wife starting the paperwork and I was like, "Well, this is going to take some time. They they want to know that you have a serious plan and a good business plan and they want to know that you have clear goals and and that you have an actual operation." And so it will take some time and it's and it's well worth it. But, you know, that being said, um, and it's the same when I fill out paperwork for NRCS or or the Conservation Stewardship Program or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm there working with my wife and and luckily she will pick up the slack a lot of times when I have paperwork to fill out or sometimes she'll fill out the paperwork. And then, so you have to have a good team to be able to, to make sure that you, you take the time to fill out this paperwork that's important um, so that your farm doesn't, doesn't uh, have a competitive disadvantage, you know, for example, um, you know, bigger farms in the United States will require or will rely on uh, some form of um, subsidy at some point, you know, a lot of times you have like these, you know, conservation reserve acres and things like that, but but you need to take the time to do it, and so the, the FBC paperwork is the same way, you need to take the time to do it, and I found that I actually got some feedback from the Kubota geared to give uh, team um, whenever they called, which was, which is a pretty awesome day. I mean, I had the, uh, so Alex Woods, he's the uh, senior VP um, for Kubota USA. So he's like the top guy uh, for Kubota in the United States. And so, so you get a call from this guy and it's a, it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, because it's such a big deal, you know, and it's such a huge, um, Help for the farm, you know, to have Kubota on your side like that. But whenever they called, they let me know, you know, your financials looked really good and you're doing it the right way. And we like to see that because what I showed was year over year profits on the farm. Now, okay. it wasn't the kind of profit where I'm buying a second home, you know, in Cancun or anything like that, you know, but it was just a few more thousand dollars this year than the year before and a few more thousand dollars the next year than the year before. And they could see that I had separate enterprises on the farm. So I had more than one um, product that I was selling. Mm-hmm. And then I would show exactly how each product was making a profit. And they're not looking for someone who's you know, some big, rich corporate farmer, but they want to know that you have a plan and you're not just wasting your time on your enterprises. You're actually building your enterprises year over year and making a profit. So I, w- I would highly recommend that you, that you show that on your financials, show that you're You're actually going somewhere with your farm business. And then there's also the essay. And for the essay portion, I really focused on what really inspired me to want to live this lifestyle. And so kind of the story that I related earlier about thoughts that I had about the life I wanted to lead while I was deployed or while I was in the military and how that related to how I wanted to raise my family um, and the lifestyle that I wanted to basically give to to my children, and those are the types of things that I reflected in the essay portion, and I also took a little bit of time to put some nice photos in where where that's Mm -hmm. applicable, and so you can show them, look, here is what we do on the farm, give them a good visual, and uh, yeah, so that was... That was really uh, that that worked for us, and so that's that's how I'd recommend that anyone else structure their uh, their application for these programs and take the time. I mean, it is worth your time. You're going to have to sit down for a while. A lot of us that are that were veterans before and now in agriculture, we we might not be paperwork types of people. You know, we might like to be outdoors, um, but this is one of those uh, pieces of paperwork that
0: um, is well worth your time. As um as we close out, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything um, or describe anything? Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have?
1: Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. So I I feel really good about that. Um, I will say that I have a website. Uh, It's www.homesteadranger.com. And on the website, I have a little bit about our farm story, and I have some instructional videos. My YouTube channel is also Homestead Ranger. And on it, I also talk about some of the practices that we've implemented here. And I have a book that I'll share with you. Um, This is a book that I published um, this year. It's um, Thrive in the Coming Dark Age, How to Build the Ultimate Survival Homestead. And so for a lot of people, you know, when you say thrive in the coming dark age, they focus on the dark age point. But uh, what I like to point out is, when you use the word thrive, um, you want to try to apply that to whatever situ- situation that you're in, that I've been in the military, we that really resonates with us, because you've seen countries um, in a way that the United, most Americans don't get to see. And so you see how bad it can get, you can see what a societal collapse looks like. And so when you want to build the ultimate survival homestead, which was our goal when we built our farm, you want to build a, a farm or a homestead that's so resilient that it doesn't matter if there's an economic downturn, a recession, or or any type of you know, national emergency. You want to build something that is going to be self-sustaining enough so that your family and future generations um, can live there and thrive and have and have sort of the, the, the peace and and the success and and the quality of life um, that that you fought for whenever you were in the military. So yeah, the book has a little bit, it starts off with uh, my experiences in, in combat zones and a lot of lessons I learned. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us were able to spend some time in those combat zones in areas where you would see that there were people and families that in the midst of all of it, they were okay. They were more resilient, they were more self-sufficient, and a lot of that had to do with
0: um, agriculture. For many veterans to even think about the effort it's taken for Joshua to get where he is today, managing a 300 plus acre cattle, goat, and hay operation can, can be overwhelming. But he lays out some very concrete and reasonable steps to help folks get there. Start early, right? in Joshua's case, it, it took a decade. Prepare financially move towards a singular goal, use available resources. FVC is a wonderful example of this. Be persistent in applying for those resources. Diversify your ag operation and find and capitalize on niche opportunities within your given market. These aren't insurmountable tasks or strokes of dumb luck. Uh, They're the result of proper planning and disciplined effort. It was really exciting to hear what a prominent role FVC played in continues to play in the success of Cold Spring Farm. If you're interested in learning more about the FVC Fellowship Fund, go to farmvetco.org forward slash fellowship. Applications for the fund close on February 14th of this year, so start applying now if you haven't already. If you're interested in learning more about Joshua and Cold Spring Farm, visit his website at homesteadranger.com and check out his book online, Thrive in the Coming Dark Age how to build the ultimate survival homestead. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness Ag tech or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike DeSa, and until next time, stay frosty.